Well, I want you to imagine a scenario. This is that could be actually quite pleasant um, for you to imagine. Imagine I came to you after the service and said that an anonymous donor has given to you the car of your dreams. I mean, the absolute automobile of your dreams. Absolutely free. Not only that, here is a card for you to get all the gas that you want. Now, perhaps you don't, you know, it's not a car that you're looking for, but a new home or a vacation or, or a new job or whatever it is. But just for the purpose of the illustration, let's stick with the car. Let's say, so here it is, Tony, an old GTO that's souped up, and I know it's exactly what you want. Here are the keys. Here is your card. And, and, and you're thinking, it's got to be too good to be true. But it seems like the real deal. And so off he drives. Teresa doesn't see him for three weeks, you know. He's... One, one, doing that at the stoplights. And, um, and so, so this goes on for about 40 days, and then one day, a payment booklet arrives in the mail for four years' worth of payments at a pretty steep rate. At the same time, someone comes to the house and says, I need that card, please. Now, Tony's been driving around saying, Gas price is three seventy-five. <laughs> Bring it on, five dollars. You know I've got a card. It's all free. It's all free. And then, so this person shows up and says, "I'll take the card." He says, "Wait a minute! I was given this car. It was free. I was told it was completely free." And then this, and the person says, "Mr. Grabowski, a very generous down payment was made for this car." Very generous. You've been given free gas for 40 days. But gas ain't cheap, you know. I'll take the card. Now, that would be pretty disheartening, discouraging. I think it's even more discouraging to think that salvation is by grace alone. It is absolutely free. And then someone comes along and says, but wait a minute. You've got to add to that grace. It ain't cheap, you know. There's more to salvation. You, surely you can't think that you can pray a prayer and that's all it takes to be saved. You're going to have to work in order to keep your salvation. Now, I would contend that such a definition of grace would be entirely false. It wouldn't be grace in any stretch of the imagination at all, anyway. The fact that there is a measure of truth in the statement that grace isn't cheap. It's not cheap. It costs God everything. It costs Jesus everything. Because of that truth, it's more dangerous. In fact, the closer error is to truth, the more dangerous it is. To say that salvation is grace plus works is error. Heresy, in fact. Now, having made such a bold statement, let me quickly say that I don't believe that everyone, I don't think that everyone who believes you can lose your salvation is not saved. In fact, as we're going to see in this text today from Acts 15, even the Apostle Peter and Barnabas got confused about grace. I do think that there are a lot of people confused about grace who were saved. But it's serious error to think that we have to add something to our salvation other than God's grace. That's what our text is about. Now, we're currently working our way through a study in the book of Acts. We're watching the advance of the gospel from the earliest days of the church when the Holy Spirit came upon Peter and the 120 disciples that were gathered together in a room 
Not far from the temple, they went over to the temple. On that day, the Holy Spirit showed himself in a mighty way in 3,000 people, at least 3,000 people, and very likely the scripture, the, the Luke was counting men plus women and children. 3,000 people, though, we're told, 3,000 souls, in fact, were added to the church on that day. Then we watched the Holy Spirit, people being saved all over Jerusalem, 10,000 plus. Um, and, and, and then the gospel moves up to Samaria. There's persecution. It moves to Samaria. Samaritans believe, but they're half Jewish. All of the people who believed in the early days were Jewish or converts to Judaism. A lot of people who had said, I want to become a Jew, and there were rites that we'll talk about that made that happen. And, and then they trusted Christ. Well, now Samaritans, but you have to say Samaritans are half Jewish. So they're coming to Christ, but they're also half Gentile. Then independent, individual Gentiles get saved. The Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. Cornelius in Acts 10 up at Caesarea. Now we know that all, all but certain that the Ethiopian eunuch was a convert to Judaism. Was Cornelius? I don't know. Probably so because they, they bragged on him, said he's helped our synagogue very much. And, and he's worthy. He's a Gentile, but he's worthy to hear this, this plan. So the apostles were constantly assessing the movement of the Spirit amongst these new peoples. Because even though the Old Testament had said that the, the Lord would make a name for, of a people for himself from the Gentiles in the Old Testament, quite a few times they didn't get it. So they're thinking... He's saving Jews. Now these few Gentiles are trickling in, but they're connected with Judaism in the first place. And they were unprepared for the huge number of Gentiles that would confess Jesus as Lord and Savior, which greatly changed the complexion of the church. So they say, what's happening? At first, when individual Gentiles were saved, they had been led to faith by such men as Philip, who was a deacon from the Jerusalem church, and by the apostle Peter. But then Gentiles in Syrian Antioch. By the way, there is Syrian Antioch, uh, Pisidia, uh, Antioch. These are different places. Syrian Antioch is like a couple of hundred miles maybe straight up from Jerusalem. And then when you get around the Mediterranean to see, see where modern Turkey is, you've got um, this Pisidian Antioch. So don't get those two Antiochs confused. Probably should get a map up here sometime. So we can make sense of it. But, but in Syrian Antioch, which was the third largest city in the, in the empire, remember, we talked about this just recently, in a very uh, cosmopolitan city, people from everywhere. Some of the converts to Christianity didn't know any better than to witness to these Gentiles. And they started accepting the Lord in fairly large Numbers. And then the Holy Spirit led the leaders of that group and the entire church affirmed that very quickly, that Paul and Barnabas should take a mission trip to the Gentiles. It was a strategic mission trip that was, was quite fluid as they went. The Lord led them as they went. And, and a lot of Gentiles came to the Lord. In fact, this trickle of Gentiles coming to Jesus became a torrent. And the success of the missionary trip created issues in the church, which we're going to begin to address immediately after prayer. Now, this chapter, Acts 15, possibly, 
this is one of the things that you discover when you're studying a book at the level that that I'm forced to and Sean is forced to. And, and if you've studied this carefully, you, you will begin to see, if you've been walking along in the, like the Timothy Keller study that we're doing in our home groups, that this chapter is extremely important. A lot of people say it's the turning point or the, the crux of, of the entire book of Acts because the gospel is clarified very uh, specifically to where we understand that salvation is by grace alone. And even though we're looking at the issues of the day, it very much impacts the way that we believe and the way that we understand God to work in our day. So we're going to get to that in just a moment, but let's, let's take just a moment and, and ask the Holy Spirit to enlighten our understanding as we, as we look into His Word. Our Father, um, we, we recognize that any truth that we understand comes from you. It's not in us to understand it. And Lord, far from making us arrogant, that ought to humble us to realize that we're not smart enough to figure this out. It seems so simple when the Holy Spirit has opened it up to us, this truth to us. But it seems so foreign and complex to the smartest people in the world apart from the Holy Spirit. So we acknowledge our day, our need this day for the Spirit to open our eyes and help us to understand this beautiful salvation that we have in Jesus that is only by grace and all that that implies for our lives. Sometimes application that seems very strange with the consideration that it's by grace alone. So we open our hearts and our minds. Fill us, we pray, with your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the big question in the early church was whether or not Gentile believers had to become Jews before becoming Christians. That seems kind of silly to us. But really, it's not much different than the idea that, that, that so many of us think before we come to Christ, we say, you know... I, I'm, I'm going to be a Christian when I, can, when I can live this life. I'm not going to be a hypocrite. I'm going to be a Christian when, I can, when I'm able to live this life. Of course, we'll never be able to live it in our own strength. Um, so that, the question was, though, do you have to become a Jew before you become a Christian? Now, it's helpful to understand that the Jews had had, had quite an influence on the entire Western world. The Roman Empire was in many ways indebted to the Jews. The synagogues were set up in cities, major cities all over the Roman Empire. And their style of living was frankly quite attractive to a lot of people because the Roman Empire was a godless, horribly undisciplined, promiscuous, pagan world. And here was a group of people that lived a very strong moral life. They were religious, as most of the people were of that day. And so that all appealed to first century Gentiles. So a number of Gentiles converted to Judaism and joined synagogues. Now, you had to be serious if you were going to become a Jew, because the males had to be circumcised. And that circumcision indicated that you were willing, it signified that you were willing to live by the law of Moses, both the moral law and ceremonial law. We'll talk about those in just a few minutes. But as the church, uh, and, and so most of the first Gentiles who were saved had been converts to Judaism. 
But as the church in Syria and Antioch grew, many Gentiles were being baptized without being circumcised. And some of the people in Jerusalem, some of the church at Jerusalem said, wait a minute, we can't have that. You can't say that that salvation is only by trusting Jesus, confessing your sins and confessing that Jesus is Lord and being baptized. You have to be circumcised. So they went to Antioch to set the church straight. Now, a lot of what we're going to say today is not necessarily, doesn't show up in Acts 15. There's another passage, and this is one of the reasons that I, I stated we'll be in Amos today, we'll be in Galatians today. One of the reasons that I stated early on, if you really study the Acts, book of Acts well, you study the whole Scripture. It takes you everywhere. Old Testament, law, prophets, psalms, gospels, epistles, it takes you everywhere in Scripture. And Galatians 2 fills in some of the, the gaps that are in Acts 15. Here's what happened. These Jews came up to Antioch, and they created a stir. And Paul got in the middle of it. <clears throat> and before he got to Jerusalem, where there was a council that settled the matter, he wrote a letter to the Galatians and said, look, there's lots of stuff going on here, and I'm telling you where I stand very very, very firmly that salvation is by grace alone. It's only by faith. Abraham believed God. It was counted to righteousness. The whole book of Galatians was written very likely out of, in response to what was going on in Antioch. So some of the things that we'll talk about come from the book of Galatians. And Paul tells us that these men, in fact, James addresses it later too, that these men claim to have been sent by James or sent by the, the Jerusalem Church, that's where we pick up in verse 1. But let me say that as we, as we go through here, typically if you're new to, to Grace Community Church, we stand when we read the Scripture. But the way we're looking at this today, we're not going to do that. We're just going to be looking at it and stopping for a while and thinking about that and moving on. And we're not going to be able to cover all the verses. I, I want to read a couple of verses that are not on the screen from chapter 14 before we jump into to, to 15. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, this is after their mission trip in Galatia, in Cyprus and Galatia, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And there was this great rejoicing. We see this over and over. And they remained no little time with the disciples. And Satan cannot stand a happy church. He hates it when people get along. He hates it when people are rejoicing together. And a lot of times he attacks from without. Now he's going to attack from within. Look at chapter 15, verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you were circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, I'm going to guess that these guys were, were Christians and, and they were confused about grace. That's kind of what the book of Hebrews is about. It's these people that, that, that the writer of Hebrews is saying, look, you keep pushing this circumcision thing. You keep, keeping this, you keep pushing this fact that you have to keep the law in addition to being saved by grace. And, and we're going to have to conclude that you never had grace to begin with. That's possibly the case here, or possibly there's some confusion. So they come up and say to the, to the Gentiles in Antioch, Unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. 
Now, again, Galatians 2 fills in. There's more to this story than, than is written right here. Um, in Galatians 2, we're told what happened in Antioch. These Judaizers came up. There's quite a bit of dissension with their claims that the Gentiles couldn't be saved unless they followed the law. And before we jump into exactly how much dissension there was, let's stop and think about the law for a moment. There, there are two components to the law of Moses. The moral law is one section. Another section is the ceremonial law. The moral law contains admonitions such as the Ten Commandments. It, 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 it spoke to behavior. It dealt with the behavior of the people. And no one questioned then, nor do we question now whether or not we should follow the moral law. In fact, Jesus put a much higher standard than the moral law required of the Old Testament. He said, look, you've heard that it's said you shouldn't kill. I'm going to tell you, you hate someone in your heart, you're guilty of murder. He went on to say, you think it's Okay, as long as you don't commit adultery. I want to tell you that it's more than the act that causes you to sin. It's lust in your heart. You are guilty of adultery if you sin at that level. So nobody's questioning the moral law. The ceremonial law was different, however, and included sacrifices and dietary laws and laws of cleanliness. Circumcision which was the physical sign of the covenant between God and Israel, was part of the ceremonial law. And it was required of all Jewish boys on the eighth day. And as we have already noted, if you wanted to convert to Judaism, then you had to be circumcised. The men did. The Judaizers at Antioch weren't saying that the Gentiles had to participate in animal sacrifices. They understood that Jesus put an end to sacrifices. But there was a whole lot about the Jewish culture that they were trying to impose on the Gentiles. They were saying, you must live like a Jew in order to be saved. Jesus was Jewish. All the apostles are Jewish. The whole church is Jewish, except for these handful, and you're getting bigger. But you, you need to understand this Gentile contingent, that you've got you to gotta look like us and live like us if you want to be saved. If the Gentiles had followed the Jewish ceremonial law, and they would have had to divorce themselves from the cultures in which they live. Now, granted, many had done that and had converted to Judaism and they lived like Jews. But, but Paul was trying to say here and the council affirmed when they got to Jerusalem that God's work is so much bigger than culture. He wants to integrate all cultures. And while these Gentiles would live by the moral law, there was no sense in requiring them to live by the ceremonial law. So do we really have to repudiate the cultural distinctives of our native countries to follow Jesus? Paul said, no, absolutely not. Now what he tells us in Galatians 2 that on this particular scene... These, these brothers came up from Jerusalem and they claimed to have authority from the, the church council. And Peter was persuaded. Peter happened to be in town. Barnabas was even persuaded. And Paul rebuked Peter and we must assume Barnabas to their face. And they said, he said, what are you doing? You, you don't even live like a Jew. And you're requiring these Gentiles to live like a Jew? Something's wrong, Peter. Well, obviously, 
from, from what we see here, Peter and Barnabas both came around. And they headed down to Jerusalem to take this matter with the council of the church, with the elders and the apostles of the Jerusalem church. So we're going to begin in verse 3 and see what happens here. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, this is exactly what we tried to tell them. It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Obviously, Peter's come around. He's saying, don't you remember? We've been over this ground already. Acts 10, he went to Caesarea, but led by the Spirit. Cornelius accepted Christ. The, the council said, come tell us what happened. In chapter 11 of Acts, they debated this already. Now we're debating it at the same issue at a deeper level. Uh, and they had agreed earlier, God's brought salvation to the Gentiles. Hallelujah. Now they're saying, but do the Gentiles have to live like Jews? So, verse 8, And God, Peter's still talking, And God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as He did to us. And He made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their heart by, hearts by faith. Now we, He echoes Paul, what Paul had told him. He tells the council. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? We can't do it. It's impossible. So why are we saying that somebody else has to live a particular way in order to be saved? But we believe that they will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. We'll be saved just as they will. We're all saved by grace. All right. So we live by Jew, some, some of the Jewish culture. That's not what saves us. We're saved by grace. And they're going to be saved the same way. And then verse 12, an amazing verse. And all the assembly fell silent. Room full of preachers. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Silence. Thoughtful reflection on what is, what's, what's been said. That's important. It's important for us to stop and think about the Scripture. That's why I think it's a great term that people use for personal devotions when they call it quiet time. It's a time to stop, read the Word, listen to the Word, the Holy, allow the Holy Spirit to cause this Word to work in your heart and mind and just reflect. Now, I was just thinking about this. I was wondering, do we ever have times of silence in our elder meetings? Usually, it's, it, it's filled with talk. My goodness, we, those meetings that are supposed to last an hour or two, you know, last three or four, oftentimes. 
I mean, you wouldn't have expected there to be silence when Jerry Hartman was an active elder. But even since then, there's been, we don't do it perhaps enough, but think of the weighty matters on this council. And they fell silent. And they began to see how the Lord had worked His salvation in Jews, Gentiles, by grace alone. Now, after this reflection, James speaks for the assembly. They've heard from Paul and Barnabas. He stands up and speaks for the the assembly. Verse 13. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, he uses the Jewish name for Simon Peter has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for His name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. This is phenomenal, coming from the book of Amos. We don't have time to flesh it out. It's awesome, though. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who were called by my name. This was just mind-blowing to the Gentiles. They had missed this. I mean, to the Jews. They had missed this. He's saying, these Gentiles are called by my name. They had thought that the Jews were the only ones called by my name. But it was there all along. The ones who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. And James says in 19, therefore, my judgment is stop right there. It's an interesting way that he says it. Here is my judgment. He's speaking for the entire council. He's not not going solo here. We see that the council affirms everything he says, and then the entire church affirms it. They are all glad and with one heart they affirm this truth. But isn't this choice of words interesting? My judgment is... We're not going to take the time to read the letter that James wrote on behalf of the council that he sends up to Antioch, to Syria and Antioch. I hope you'll take the time and read that later today. But in that, he says two or three times, it seemed good to us. It seemed good to us in the Holy Spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit has led this council by this purposeful, prayerful, spirit-led deliberation. It's not that the Holy Spirit just speaks. Somebody goes into a trance and starts speaking. But they deliberate and they come to this conclusion. That this is what God has done. Therefore, he says, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. But should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Now, James said a mouthful here. First in verse 19, he, he says to leave the Gentiles alone about circumcision. Please, it's not a part of salvation. Your works are not a part of your salvation. But in verse 21, he acknowledged that the Jewish law has had great influence all over the Roman Empire. God, in his wisdom, scattered the Jews during the Babylonian captivity all over the empire. And they set up synagogues to worship the Lord. And these synagogues had great influence in the areas. And so, in verse 20, he's saying, it's no need to unnecessarily offend Jewish believer, Jewish 
Jewish men and women and converts to Judaism, and especially Jewish Christians, do not offend these people unnecessarily. Now, because of that, he's encouraging them to avoid unnecessarily um, offending them by uh, adhering to these few elements from the ceremonial law. Three of these are dietary. Then he says, and abstain from sexual immorality. Again, this, he's not addressing part of the moral law. Everybody knows that if, you're, if, you, if you belong to the Lord, then sex outside of marriage is just prohibited. And, and we all understand that. And that's not what he's saying. I mean, he may as well have said, don't eat meat that's been strangled or with the blood still in it. And don't lie. So he's not saying that. What he's saying is, going back to Leviticus 18, all of the laws about blood relatives marrying, intermarrying, half-brothers and sisters and stepmothers and, you know, those kinds of things. He's saying, don't, look, just don't be, there's no need for this, for you to do it. So adhere to that part of the ceremonial law. But to require circumcision was not only going too far, it was adding to grace. And that is absolutely not permissible for salvation. You can't add to grace. So the council agreed with James, and the entire church affirmed this monumental doctrinal decision that salvation is by grace alone. But then they stated to the Gentiles in Syria through their letter that would follow here, rather... Don't use your your freedom in Christ abusively, but rather give consideration to the culture around you. Which leads us to this principle. Salvation is by grace alone. There are no works involved at all. That's good news because I'm not good enough to be accepted by God in my own strength. But there's also another principle at work at the same time. Freedom in Christ allows us to accommodate cultural sensibilities of particular peoples and countries. That's what James told him as he, as he sent him up north. Okay, you're saved by grace. You don't have to become Jewish. But look, don't go out of your way to offend people. And we're really good at that. I'm saved. I don't have to abide by that. I can just do anything I want to. No. If you're in, in Christ, you have the freedom to restrict some of your activities so that it doesn't offend people who are believers and those who are not believers. He told, James told him in that letter that he hadn't sent the Judaizers. No such message had been sent by the Jerusalem church. And there was much rejoicing in this decision amongst the Gentiles. And when you think about it, this decision opened the door for those of us who are here today, who are Gentiles, to come to Christ and follow Him in such a way that we can continue to be salt and light in our communities. We don't have to look so different that everybody says, that is weird. I mean, the cross of Christ is going to offend people. The message of the cross is going to be offensive. Nothing we can do about that. But we need to be careful about offending people by being so different that the gospel doesn't go forth. Well, back to Antioch. After the beautiful unity around the pure gospel of grace that came as a result of this letter from Jerusalem, Paul and Barnabas felt led to head back to Cyprus and to southern Galatia where they had been, Iconium, Lystra, Derby, all those places that they had recently been, and just to strengthen the brothers. 
Barnabas was quite an encourager. Barnabas wanted to take Mark. He said, let's give the boy a second chance. You remember he went with us the first time, but he, but he left and Paul said, uh-uh, quitter. I don't want to quitter on this journey. And the division was so great that they separated. Now, a couple of things happened. First, there was a division. That's bad. But the Lord multiplied the kingdom work. Do not, however, look at the fact that God multiplies his work and say, well, division is not only okay, it may be good. It's never a good thing. The New Testament makes it clear over and over. We are to dwell together in unity. And this is not a great moment in the church. Does God use it for good? Absolutely he does. I am certain that Barnabas continued to be used by the Lord. In fact, Barnabas, the encourager, think of what a role he had played in Paul's life. He had, he had gotten the apostles at Jerusalem to, to accept Paul when they were scared to death of him because of what he had done in the past killing Christians. And, and Barnabas was wanting to take Mark again, and Mark ended up much later on being a great help to the apostle Paul in his ministry. But at this time they separate, and the Scripture follows Paul. Follows him to Galatia, where we meet a new, very key figure in Lystra. Let's read these first five verses of chapter 16. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman, Eunice, who was a believer, but his father was a Greek Probably Timothy, Eunice, had been saved the first go-round. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra in Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. If there's contradiction in Scripture, I don't know where there's a better one than right here. Apparently. It's not a contradiction at all. But you're thinking, wait a minute. I mean, in chapter 15, the first few verses, they said you have to be circumcised in order to be saved. <clears throat> and Paul says, no, you don't. No, that's awful. Sorry, I didn't mean to scare you like that. I really didn't. But I'm just saying, and, and I guarantee you that that was Paul. It would have been interesting to see him on that day. I'm certain he was angry. And he's saying, no, this can't happen. Now he's saying, okay, Timothy, get circumcised and we'll go on a missionary trip. What is the, it's just that principle that we've been talking about over and over. Circumcision has nothing to do with salvation. In this case, Paul was thinking it has everything to do with your ministry. We're going to be, you're half Jewish. We're going to be ministering in the synagogues. A lot of Jewish believers in these places. There's no need for you to be, in a, to be, um, a stumbling block to these people. In fact, the point here is Timothy wasn't being limited in his ministry by the Apostle Paul. He was actually expanding it by making this decision to be circumcised. Lots of times we feel like, well, if I just look a certain way, act a certain way, then I can really minister to this group of people. Well, that's true. But if you get way outside of the culture, then you're going to limit your ministry rather than 
expand it and be able to minister to people from all walks of life. So, Paul wanted both Jews and Gentiles to be converted, and his actions in the two places were anything but contradictory. They complemented one another. And in fact, we're about to read that he spread the decision of the Jerusalem council far and wide, that salvation is by grace alone with no mixture of law whatsoever. Verse 4. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. All these cycles that we see, success of the gospel, opposition of Satan. Keep on moving, the numbers increase. People are strengthened in the faith, they're encouraged. There are conflicts, and the Lord's ministry and the Lord's work keeps going on and on and on. Oh, that we might be strengthened in the faith. The faith that begins and ends with grace. And oh, that we might dwell together in unity. And that we might major on the majors and minor on the minors.